Good morning, everyone. Someone said that anger is only a letter short of danger. Uh, it is like a flame uh, blazing up and consuming our self-control. Uh, sometimes making us think and say and do things that we will probably regret later. As it says that you cannot see your reflection in the boiling water. So you cannot see truth in a state of anger. Not to mention that no one heals himself by wounding another person through anger. This morning, we continue our study on the 12 disciples. We've been working through this. We have covered Peter and Andrew, and today we are going to look at the Apostle James. Uh, of course, uh, his, his nickname given by Jesus is the Lightning Boat, uh, Son of Thunder. And Caroline reminded me the original word is Son of Rage. So thunder is a softer version of it. There are three James in the Bible, in Scripture. And the first one is the one that we'll be looking at this morning, the Apostle James. His brother is John, his younger brother. Father Zebedee owned a fishing business together with Peter and Andrew's parents. They run a successful fishing business. And uh, James, it is in Greek, in Hebrew is Jacob. So if your name is Jacob and James, it means the same thing. Or for that matter, Joshua and Jesus is the same. And the second person by the name of James is also one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. James, the son of Alphas. We do not know whether he's related to Matthew because Matthew is also the son of Alphas. It could be. If he is, then there will be three sets of brothers in the 12 disciples. Son of Alphas, little details, but we will cover, uh, come to him a little bit later on. And the third James, probably a little bit more well-known than James of Alphas, is the brother of Jesus, or half-brother of Jesus. In case you do not know, Jesus, uh, Joseph and Mary went on to have many more children, okay? Not just only Jesus, went on to have many more children recorded in the scripture, I think five were mentioned, although the word sisters was plural, so it might be many more. And James was one of them. And James is a very powerful man, if you do not know. He chaired the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, and uh, Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles and Peter the Apostle to the Jew both look up to him as a, a leader, a strong man. And the letter of James in your New Testament is written by, not by this Apostle James. It is written by the brother of Jesus, just in case you don't know. Okay? That is uh, written by the brother of Jesus and not the Apostle James. The Apostle James left us no, no uh, books at all. And of course, James is uh, the inner circle in uh, Jesus' uh, Close, needed 12. Out of the 12, there are four that are the inner circle. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, four of them. Uh, interestingly, throughout the Bible, James and John are always mentioned together. James and John. It's never James, but it's always James and John together. 
And, and let me just tell you a few things before I give you a, on three texts that actually mention about James. The first thing that we can, we can talk about James is that probably from quite a well-to-do family, because in James, uh, Mark chapter 1, when Jesus called them to uh, discipleship, this is what it says here. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he caught them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So he was apparently quite well-to-do. His family business was large enough to employ multiple hired servants. And secondly, we can mention that they are also quite well-connected. The Zebedee was quite well-connected in John chapter 18 when Jesus was led into the courtyard to appear before the high priest. Peter and John went along behind. But they were not able to grant access to them uh, until John had some connection. I'll, I'll, I'll let the text do the job. Simon Peter and another disciple, which is John, were following Jesus. Because this disciple, which is John, was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, which is John, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. So Peter was not allowed to enter into the courtyard because he's a nobody. Whereas John, because he has some connection with uh, the father, may be related to, connected to a high priest, maybe supply special kind of salmon or fish. Uh, to, to the high priest, special diet, I don't know. Uh, but but it is, he is quite well connected. As a result of that, um, he was able to gain access to the courtyard and he was able to bring Peter in as well. And it was in that courtyard later, later on, uh, Peter denied Jesus three times. So this morning, I want to look at uh, uh, three things. Because James can be can be summarized up in one word because of his zeal. He's zealous for God. He's very zealous for God. You know, his zeal is a virtue when it is truly zeal for righteousness' sake. But we also know that zeal, apart from knowledge, can be damning. Not to mention that zeal without wisdom is dangerous. That is why we have such a thing called fanatic. Because they have so much zeal, but their zeal is not governed by knowledge in a sense. And so when zeal is, is disintegrates into uncontrolled passion, it can be deadly. And James sometimes had a tendency to let such misguided zeal to get the better of him. And we are going to look at uh, two incidents uh, in his life. The first one is the passage they have just read to us um, by Willard on the calling fire from heaven. Because Jesus was passing through, going to Jerusalem, and they walked right through Samaria, which is his custom. Unlike all the other Jews, they were bypass Samaria like this. Walking down, bypass Samaria, go this way, down, and then 
they will work extra three days because they don't want to go to Samaria. But Jesus, with his disciple, was wanting to go to Jerusalem. That's the easiest road to walk through. But the Samaritan did not receive him well. And James and John was indignant, was furious, anger. Who are you? You know, we have this power. We've seen Jesus perform miracles. Say, Lord, do you want us to call out fire and burn this village? Like what Elijah did in the past. Of course, Jesus didn't allow them to do that. You must understand that Samaritan, they have a terrible history with, uh, with, with, with the Jews. Because where the Samaritan came about is, remember Israel was a united nation, but it split into two. Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom. Northern Kingdom, they call themselves Israel, and Southern Kingdom is Judah. Northern Kingdom went away 10 tribes. Southern Kingdom, 2 tribes. Northern Kingdom, 20 kings, all lousy kings, not even a single good king. And as a result, in 722 BC, they were conquered by Assyrian Empire. Came in, captured them, and the Jews went into exile, into captivity. But not most of the influential and rich people uh, was, was, went into captivity, but the poorer people, the farmer, they were left behind. And the Assyrian, the king, will repopulate the northern kingdom with other pagans that they have conquered, you know, um, um, people and repopulate the place. And as such, they intermarried with the Jew. And so they are not pure Jew in the sense, and therefore the Jewish people hate them. And they worship, they mix, they mix with the pagan worship and all that kind of thing. And the best summary is in Second Kings chapter 17 that says, they worship the Lord, but they also worship their own gods according to the custom of the nation, because they were repopulated with other nations into the northern tribes, from which they had been carried away. So they still claim to worship God, but they founded their own priesthood, they built their own temple, and they devised a sacrificial system of their own making. They made a new religion based on large part on pagan traditions, uh, mixture, which is what we call syncretism. Huh? That's the word that we use, all mixed, a little bit here, a little bit here, and then they form into one religion, syncretism, synchronized, you know. And of course, Samaritan believed that Mount Jerusalem as a, uh, was the temple of worship and not Jerusalem. And so, but it's, it's worthwhile mentioning that Jesus, he had never shown anything but goodwill to the, towards the Samaritans. Always goodwill, unlike the disciple, but Jesus always showed goodwill towards the Samaritan. Remember the story of uh, the ten lepers? He healed the Samaritan as well. It was the Samaritan that returned to him and, and thanked him. And Jesus looked at his eye, Where? Well, I didn't I heal ten? Why only t one returned? So Jesus healed a Samaritan leprosy. And then, of course, the famous one is the Samaritan woman. She spent some time with, with her and, and led her to the Lord and spent there three days to preach to the village. And, of course, he had made a Samaritan the hero of the one of the best-known parables, which is Good Samaritan. And later, he would command his disciples to bring the gospel to where? Samaria as well. Huh? So he had always been full of kindness 
and goodwill towards the Samaritans. But now they were treating him with deliberate contempt. And as a result, John, James and John, they were furious, they were upset, they were angry. They were filled with passionate outrage. And they already had in mind a remedy for this situation. They said, Lord, do you want us to, to call fire from heaven to destroy them? Even as Elijah did. They almost used Elijah as a, as a, as a way of reference to say, well, Elijah did that, we do that, shouldn't be anything wrong in that, in the sense. But Jesus never did that. Jesus said this. Jesus turned and rebuked them. Instead of going along with them, Jesus rebuked them. And then he and his disciples went to another village. There was a poem that wrote about this incident. And this is what it says. A bit old English, but you, you pick it up. He said, My son, art thou above thy Lord, a greater one than he, when caught I for fire or sword, Thou hast not learned of me. Make truth thy sword and love thy flame and then battle in thy master's name. Make truth thy sword. Did you know that Christian, our sword is truth? And love is our flame, our passion. Love and truth. This is the two things we have to hold on to it as believers. Never, never give up your truth based on your silly compassion. Misguided, I would say. Many Christians now have misguided compassion, which they interpret it as love. Never sacrifice truth. Never. Make truth thy sword and love thy flame. If you have truth without love, that's brutality. If you have love without truth, that is hypocrisy. Christian position is always truth and love paired together. And Paul says in Ephesians, speaking the truth in love. These two must be together. Don't sacrifice truth. Do not. Out of our misguided compassion in this modern social issue. Sometimes the most loving things to do is to say no. So do not. In this climate that we live in, some of us Christians, our, we don't know what love is. We become overwhelmed. We're just led by emotion, devoid of truth. So truth and love. Make truth thy sword and love thy flame and then battle in thy master's name. Second incident that we can uh, see from uh, James' life is coveting status in the kingdom. So not just calling fire from heaven, but coveting status in the kingdom. Some of us are familiar with this story about uh, James and John's mother uh, brought James and John to see Jesus. And Jesus asked her, what is it that you want? And then she said to Jesus, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right 
and the other at your left in your kingdom. Let John and Jane be your right-hand man and the left-hand man. Will you do that for me? It has been said, some studies have shown that James and John's mother make the request to Jesus because James and John's mother is, is, uh, is Jesus' auntie, which means to say Jesus, James and John, they are cousins. They derive at this view by looking at the three lists of women under the foot of the cross. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, there were some women with, with, uh, with, with Jesus, only one man. You know who is the man that was with Jesus? Hey? John. John. Huh? Only women, women, many, but men all run away. Front very good, you know, very strong. <laughs> actually covered but a woman came along and uh, there are three lists of women mentioned in Mark uh, Matthew Mark and John let me just show to you and that's how they derive the fact that James and John mother is actually related to Jesus Matthew list shows that three women under the foot of the cross Mary Magdalene for some reason all named Mary and I don't know why uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, which is the mother of James and John, right? Sons of Zebedee. And Mark Lee's is almost identical. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and Joseph, and Salome. So from that two lists, we can conclude that James and John's mother, the name is Salome. Yes? You follow me until now? Salome. And then John's list added another woman, and that is Jesus' mother, Mary. Another Mary. Okay? Just to Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So they... So Mary Magdalene appeared in three of the lists. And then there's this Mary, the wife of Clopas. So Mary, the wife of Clopas, most likely is the same as Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Okay? So instead of referring it to, instead of referring Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, John decided to use the husband as a reference point rather than the son. Mary, the wife of Clopas. So then, there is this thing called his mother's sister. Who is this mother's sister? So the mother's sister, most people deduce then, is the Salome. Is the mother of the sons of Zebedee, the mother of James and John. And so in that, if you follow that, that pattern or that theory or this interpretation, then they are related. And so it's quite natural in that sense that Salome, who is Jesus' auntie, would come to Jesus and say, hey, these are your two cousins. Are they not going to be your right and left-hand men to rule in the kingdom? But what is more puzzling about this request is what Jesus just said to them before they made this request. Look at this, what 
Jesus said to them before the mother came and asked for this request. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest. Talking about himself. We are going to Jerusalem now. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. And he will hand him, then they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be flogged, to be crucified. But praise the Lord, on the third day, he will be raised to life. So can you imagine Jesus just said this to his disciples? And then quickly, the mother pulled him aside. Hey, 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 hey. You're about to die, Eddie. Maybe can you make sure you put in hard concrete paper that they're going to be your left and right hand man? Jesus' message obviously did not penetrate the disciples' hearts. We all experience that. We don't listen with our heart, isn't it? We only listen with our ears. We don't listen with our heart. Jesus was talking about his death and yet he's thinking about kingdom. You know? So in contrast to this announcement of suffering and death, we have a request of James and John and their mother, Salome. Jesus spoke about a cross, but they were interested in the crown. They wanted reserved seats or special thrones. And we get the impression that the mother Salome was the real inspiration behind this request. And that she was interested in promoting her sons and maybe use her, her weight as an auntie. You know, in Asian culture, auntie, your power, you know, auntie. to establish and give his two sons some status. And Jesus said three things to them. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said, your request, your request is born in ignorance. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink, which is the cup of suffering? Can you? Do you know what is ahead of you? Do you know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? It's born out of ignorance. Of course, they say we can. Ignorantly, they say we can, which eventually they all did. They all did, but at this point, probably out of ignorance. Not just that this request is born out of ignorance, I believe that this this request is also lack of heavenly direction. No heavenly direction. It's only earthly direction. Most of us believers only look at earth. We don't look at heaven. We don't look beyond this earth. We don't look at eternity. We look only on retirement. We don't look beyond retirement. We, we look into eternity. That your worldview need to include if you believe in eternity. And here Jesus is saying to implying to them that you only have earthly direction. Your request is earthly bound. But I'm asking you to look beyond heavenly direction. And that's why Jesus went on to say this to them. He called them together. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And the high officials exercise authority over them. This is how the, way op the world operates about leadership, about rulers, about power. This is how the way works, earthly bound. But let me direct you to 
the heavenly direction. He said, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. So Jesus said, your request is earthly bound, is earthly directed about power like the Gentiles, ruling over people. That's how you interpret leadership. But that is not heavenly directed. A heavenly director is not like that. It's about service. Different form of leadership. Rule as a servant. Serve as a king. That is Jesus' way of operation while he was on earth. Rule as a servant. Serve as a king. And finally, the request was not just only of the world and of the flesh, although it's not reflected in this text, I believe this request is of the devil. This request is of the devil. If you believe that Isaiah 14, that talks about Satan, is referring to Lucifer, about how he was cast down to earth. And as a result of Satan being cast down to earth, he brought alone one third of the angels, becomes demons to rule the world. And remember when Jesus was led into the temptation wilderness account, what did Satan ask Jesus to do in the third request? You bow down and worship me and I will give you this kingdom. This is the way the world operates. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, Away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan magnified the end, which is a throne, but not the means to get there. And Jesus warned Salome and James and John that the special thrones were available to those who were worthy of them. There are no shortcuts in the kingdom of God. So if I may add here, according to Jesus, the first, step of, the first step to leadership is servanthood. And if serving is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. That is biblical way of defining leadership. If serving is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. So this is the second account, the second incident that we have about James. Coveting. But of course, as time goes on, Jesus begins to mold and shape him. He begins to change. The third thing that we can look at is the cup of suffering. The end of James' story from an earthly perspective is recorded in Acts chapter 12. He is the only apostle, or rather, he was the first apostle to suffer martyrdom out of the twelve. And it is the only martyrdom of the 12 disciples that was recorded in the New Testament. The rest are from extra-biblical accounts from church history, church early fathers and all that. But James' death is specifically recorded in Scripture about how he died. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. 
he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And that is beheaded. Huh? Beheaded. So James was beheaded. That's how he faced his death. Why did King Herod, why did Herod do that? Because he wanted to please the Jews. And that is why he proceeded to seize Peter also. So James died. We have very few details of James' martyrdom, um, but only that he was beheaded, sometimes between 40 to 44 AD, by this particular Herod, which is not King Herod, by the way, not Herod the Great, okay? Herod the Great in the New Testament, the, the time where they killed the newborn when Jesus was born, that is his grandfather. That is his grandfather. And then his uncle, his uncle was the one who beheaded John the Baptist. So there are many Herods in the Bible. Uh, and this particular Herod uh, beheaded Andrew. And then his son, another Herod, was the one that Paul, in later on in chapter 25, uh, had to defend um, before this Herod in Acts 25. So Herod, aimed to please the Jews in every way. He showed great regard for the Mosaic law and Jewish custom. Of course, he doesn't want to upset the, the system. And James was the easy target because James is a very zealous man. He was outspoken. And his, and his leading part in the Jewish Christian communities uh, may lead to Herod choosing him as the first apostolic victim. We do not have detail of his death, just like in all other disciples, we need to depend on early church doctrine, uh, a document to guess the possibility of the way of his, his death, other than we are told that he was beheaded. Uh, some believe that while he was during trials, they have to bring along some false witness to testify. And so they brought along this particular false witness by the name of Josiah. Josiah falsely testified about James and as a result, based on his account, and they sentenced him to death. But Josiah sense, could sense James was so passionate and fearless in his death that moves him so much that led to his conversion. And he embraced and bowed before uh, James, fell at his feet, he repented his sin and he asked for forgiveness. And James embraced him, gave him a kiss and said, Peace and forgiveness to you. And then Josiah confessed his faith in Christ before everyone and he was beheaded with St. James the Apostle. So that's what we are told from extra biblical document in the early church of how James died, beheaded. Zeal. Zeal can get us into trouble if you are passionate for God. Hopefully it's rounded with love. I want to read to you something and then I'll close. J.C. Rye, a 19th century English pastor. 
very eloquent style of writing. And he said this about someone who is zealous. He said a zealous person in religion is preeminently a man of just one thing. It is not enough to say that he is earnest or hearty or uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. But this zealous person, he sees only one thing. He cares only for one thing. He lives only for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. That one thing that consumes you, a zealous believer, is to please God. And then he went on to say this. He said, whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame, for all this, the zealous person cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If he is consumed in the very burning, he is content. He feels like a lamp. He is made to burn. And if consumed in burning, he has but done the work for which God appointed him. A zealous person for the Lord. One thing, and the one thing is to please God. That's all. Imagine you have that as your guiding Christian journey in your life. Whatever I do, whatever I say, whatever is to please God. That would be the direction. I think that will keep your flame alive. Even as you grow into old age, they always say, isn't it? Young, they got full of zeal, no knowledge. But old people, they have knowledge and no what? No zeal. Because you've seen too much. You've been there, done that in that sense. You have lack of zeal now. But I think if our direction is always to please God, everything you do, then the zeal will stay with you until the day you see Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of James. Passionate believer. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. Some of us, we are Christian too long. And we become cold. We become indifferent. We are sick of the politics. We are injured. We are all kinds of things. And, and we turn cold. We just go through motion. We no longer pray. We no longer read your word. We are not excited about anything. We just go through our Christian religion. Come to church, do this, sing a few songs. 
use spiritual languages, but our hearts are already cold. Dear Lord, today, this morning, we bow our heads. We ask you to revive us. We ask you to send a fire into our heart once again, that we will be inflamed and fall in love with Jesus once again, like when we first give our hearts to you. Let our hearts not grow cold, Lord. Let our hearts not grow cold. We want to burn for you and stand for you in this very dark time that we live in, Lord. Challenging time, difficult time, where every Christian moral virtues are being attacked. We need soldiers for Jesus. We need soldiers who stand firm, do not let the riches or the activities or whatever that suck the passion out of our heart, that our heart want to remain strong, fiery for you, make true our sword and flame our love. And then we serve you faithfully. Thank you, Lord. Send the flame into our heart once again. As we sing this song, by faith, Lord, stir our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.